0: Hello, and welcome to the fifth edition of the Draculina Podcast. I am Hugh Gallagher, owner of Draculina Publishing, and this is the part two of the interview with writer, producer, director Tim Ritter. If you have not listened to part one, I suggest you back out of this episode and go find part one. Better yet, follow the Draculina Podcast, and then you will be notified every time a new episode comes out. Before we jump into this, let me plug the website at draculina.com you can get past issues of draculina, oriental cinema, she, pinup and many more magazines as well as dvds and books. If you're listening to this podcast, you can use the code POD25 that's P O D 2 5 and get 25% off your order. That is good until October 31st, 2019, which is not too far away. Find links on the site to our YouTube channel with Horrible Hughes Coffin Reviews or Horrible Hugh Reviews Mini B Movies. Check it all out at Draculina.com. Okay, let's continue with part two of the Tim Ritter interview. You hooked up with nymphomaniac Kathy Willets for Crete. I assumed you approached her because of her news media attention. How did you approach her for the movie and how did she work out?
1: Creep actually evolved when uh, we were making um, the rounds to to, um, distribute and sell Wicked Games, Truth or Dare Part 2. I was kind of on the road with that. Uh, There was like a big scandal with uh, the the Florida liaison department uh, and getting permission to shoot on beaches, and I went on some TV shows, and that kind of escalated, and then, There was just publicity all over the state of Florida for what the liaison office was or was not doing for independent movie makers, and that thing escalated. So I was on all these local TV shows at the time, uh, and they were demanding that you had insurance policies uh, of a million dollars to even shoot on the beach, and my retaliation was kind of like, well, you're going to charge... um, Tourists that amount, just to break their camcorders out, okay, I might have a guy with a copper mask and a trench coat and a guy in a suit chasing him down the beach, but you know what's really the difference if I'm not hurting anybody and then you know with tourists with their camcorders just filming their kids jump in the water you know is that that sort of weird thing, and um, everything uh, was going great though because that kind of publicity just kind of helped propel the movie in that a limelight. So I was doing radio shows and I was doing TV shows and it was getting beyond the state and I was trying to get the movie to go national um, with rack jobbers and distributors just like I had done for Killing Spree on, on VHS. But we had other problems like the Chaz Ballen boxes um, which had Linnea Quigley as a model on the cover with kind of a bondage thing and, and uh, Patricia Paul in the back, bloody in the bathtub. They got banned uh, printers were threatening me. So there's a lot of friction and a lot of crazy stuff going on with Wicked Games at that time. And I went on this, uh, you know, I had done articles in the Miami Herald, the Fort Lauderdale, Sun Sentinel, Fangoria, Draculina. I mean, we had all kinds of you know really cool publicity, and of course Draculina was really at its peak and headed even higher at, at that point in the coverage of these, these kind of movies, and uh, you know, with Killing Spree and Wicked Games, and of course Creep. Um, and uh, while just sh- while, while going on a radio show in Fort Lauderdale with Herschel Gordon-Lewis, which was awesome, got to go on the air with H.G. Lewis and uh, uh, talk with him and c- kind of compare notes about, you know, kind of what it's like then, which was different than the uh, drive-in and the video store era. And he, he put his, uh, you know, insights into everything. I got my book signed by him. He was rather harsh on uh, Killing Spree, which kind of surprised me because he had viewed the movie, and I dedicated the movie to him, and I was always trying to get him to do a, a kind of a cameo role in him, and he always turned me down. And then later he was, you know, ended up doing a, a ton of cameos in the convention circuit and doing Blood Feast 2, and then finally the Uh-Oh! show, which starred my leading man, Joel Weinkoop. He kind of stole them for me eventually over, you know, the next 15 years or so. So it's kind of interesting how all that worked. But I did this radio show with H.G. Lewis. Um, we talked on it and I think it was in Fort Lauderdale and Kathy Willett's husband, Jeff Willett. Um, of course she was prominent in the uh, South Florida headlines especially and, and on the national headlines at the time as a scandalous celebrity on Geraldo, Current Affair, all those kind of shows. And uh, actually Jeff Willett approached me and said, hey, he didn't tell me who he was, he said, oh, my name's Ted, how would you like to have a national, nationally known uh, you know, star in one of your movies? And he had seen and heard the the uh, H.G. Lewis uh, material at the time. So long story short, we ended up um, figuring out that it was uh, Jeff Willits and uh, he was representing his wife Kathy Willits, uh, known as America's favorite nymphomaniac for 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 him watching in the closet as she had sex with politicians, recording it on videotape, and you know their whole story of defense with Prozac, and well, I think one, a couple of them ended up being uh, prominent uh, Florida politicians, and uh, you know made national news. There were scandals, people fired, people went to jail, all that sort of thing. She was coming out of the uh, justice system and embarking on uh, a new career. Uh, in the adult film industry and uh, going to strip clubs and she wanted to do acting. She wanted to dabble in you know, acting and kind of legitimate acting. So to me it was kind of like a Connie Mason being in Blood fe- Feast situation. Uh, you know, I kind of you know, related it to that. And, uh, you know, Marilyn Chambers being in uh, Rabid, that sort of thing. You know, would Cronenberg have turned this down? Would H.G. Lewis have turned it down? So it was ironic that, uh, you know, it did happen on a radio show with H.G. Lewis where they had heard about me in an article for the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel. So ended up uh, working with Michael Ornelas, another guy who had joined us as a line producer on Wicked Games. And uh, his partner uh Tony Granham's, and they uh initially uh agreed to finance Creep and we'd been working on Creep for some time, um uh, before Kathy Willis got involved. I was trying to, you know, write something really intense and crazy more in uh Eric Stanzi did a movie called Scrapbook and the original script for Creep was very much more like that in that vein with one woman starring patricia paul being kidnapped by a serial killer and all the humiliating things that happened to her a battle of wits and just one house so it was real close to that actually so it's interesting that you know that movie was made by someone else who had no knowledge of what i was doing but when kathy willits came came on board uh... i kind of changed the script so it wasn't as harsh and hardcore it was more in the spirit of natural born killers and you know for we were under a deadline suddenly where Kathy, Kathy Willits had these certain days where she could do it. So I really had to come up with a script fast and kind of adapt it for her schedule and trying to get her stuff done in like four days. And so, you know, the movie evolved from that. And she was, you know, really her and Jeff both were really excellent to, um, work with. Um, friendly, uh, willing to do anything, Uh, they were on time, Uh, just, you know, excellent, you know, she would do anything that that you wanted on that, and it was just, you know, really, really cool. Uh, I think she was arrested at T's Lounge for lewd and lascivious activity that was all over the news and we were there shooting in that strip club doing you know filming her act in there at the you know at the you know for our movie and we kind of incorporated some of that into the you know the movie and her part what was going on in her personal life uh, and with her character so you know it all worked out and it was just you know it was kind of problem free with her and those scenes so you know no no big problems there at all so that's that's kind of how all that evolved uh, you know with them approaching us and saying, hey, uh, and, and uh, you know, it, it was just, you know, by then things were running really smooth, I had, you know, we had some hiccups with Wicked Games, but everything I had learned from the previous movies, Truth or Dare and Killingsbury, you know, was applying to this on how to make things run smooth and get it done right, get it done quick, and uh, get it, you know, in the can or on the tape and into the editing room so we could, you know, get these things packaged and, and cranked out there, so... It was uh like I said pretty pretty awesome, you know, and uh you know we went on from there.
0: Did the media attention pay off in distributing the movie?
1: Uh yes, definitely yes and no. Uh creep at again at the time that was Kathy Willett's peak time as a scandalous celebrity. She was on Geraldo. Uh Current Affair, all those kind of crazy news shows and you know we got on there again it was like uh, when I was on CNN for Truth or Dare we were on these shows on national you know getting national publicity. Now that's nothing because you know anybody can be an international sensation with a viral video and can be seen all over the world so it's amazing how at that time you know in 1994 what a breakthrough that was for a little nobody in south florida a little nobody filmmaker to be you know catapulted into the limelight with this scandalous celebrity we're making a movie i think at the time um uh, joey buttafuoco was uh, uh another scandalous celebrity was being promoed through there and and there was a a couple more uh, of that that we kind of got packaged with on on all these shows, you know, all these crazy dish the dirt type of uh, television shows. So uh, so definitely the media attention was was incredible for a movie like this that was like you know forty thousand dollars or less in budget, shooting on just you know pro-svhs you know these were really uh... intense state-of-the-art like twelve thousand dollar cameras at the time which was uh... pretty incredible Um so yes yeah, so all that really paid off uh... we got coverage in a, a ton of adult magazines again draculina you know couple of big stories in the first color issue you know we got attention in there fangoria magazine Uh, Number 146 covered all my movies, finally, so that was like, to me, it was like winning an Academy Award, and Creep helped catapult that into the magazine, we had, you know, ads in in the magazine for Creep, and being able to, you know, write the article myself, which covered, you know, all the, the journey to that point was just incredibly invigorating, and I was just so stoked, so, again, that was a personal peak for me, like, being able to live the dream and, you know, being uh, spotlighted in the magazine that I grew up reading in the back of the classroom in, in school and, you know, all that kind of thing. Finally, I'd had smaller articles about my movies and, you know, the one-page monster invasion things up to that point. But here was finally Creep kind of catapulted this color article. And, 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 again, there were other magazines, Screamcraft, uh, I mean, Horror, I think. I don't know if it was Horror Hound or Horror Fan, Gore Zone, and on and on. There was just, you know, magazines and and coverage in the media. Uh, and, And as Kathy Willis did her adult career, we got extensive coverage by, you know, all the adult magazines as well. Playboy, all that kind of stuff, so... It, it was incredible. I've never really experienced, uh, you know, that kind of media blitz since then. Maybe a little bit uh, in that vein for um, recently. High eight, uh, you know, got a pretty good uh, Wild Eye uh, distribution, ads and coverage, and you know, in a lot of the bigger magazines and stuff. So, you know, but at that time, Creep was just while we were shooting. It was an incredible, you know, all these shows, showing up on the set, doing interviews, and of course, Kathy Willis was the main focus, we were just kind of riding on on her coattails, and from the semi-success of, uh, you know, Wicked Games, which in turn creep, as we shot that, it boosted the sales of Wicked Games incredibly, because we were getting, you know, publicity and scandalous stuff from Wicked Games, while concurrently we're filming a new one with Kathy Willett so it it was a roller coaster and i i feel exhausted just thinking back on it because i was doing so many other things working a regular job uh, i was uh, a president of a condominium in florida and by president i mean like manager so i had that going uh, i ran a youth center so i don't i don't know really how you know we did all this stuff so you know it was just an incredible time, but the media attention was just incredible. So definitely felt you know very you know like like I was some sort of pseudo celebrity at that time with you know again everybody coming at me for interviews at all times. So it was it was pretty cool and it was great that you know the stuff that I was doing you know was getting you know that kind of uh, attention and focus, uh, which was really kind of unheard of for you know small shot on video horror movies with very small budgets for the most part so you know it it was uh... you know it was a huge success to me in a lot of ways so can't complain at all
0: you then started the dirty cop movies what inspired those
1: well the dirty cop movies were something i had in mind you know from for a long time uh... i love the dirty harry movies i love the bad lieutenant and I'd always wanted to do my spin on the concept of a of a crazed cop, and I'd done that. I'd done Dirty Harry knockoffs. Uh, always growing up on Super Eight film, I uh, had created a character called Big H, uh, who would. Take the law into his own hands, and another one called uh, Blake Simack a character, and he was in a, a movie instead of Sudden Impact, it was Instant Thrust, and doing the same dirty Harry type of things. And those things had filtered over, you know, some of those situations in those movies had filtered over into my other movies, like even Creep and and Wiki Games and those sort of things. um, Um. Uh, So Dirty Cop, I had this vision of uh, a cop pulling a speeder over who was intoxicated and completely annihilating the car with his baton and and demeaning the the drunk driver and roughing him or her up and destroying the car and leaving them just completely shaken and devastated. So I had this vision in my head for doing that and uh, I I pictured Joel D. Winekoop in the lead role. For Dirty Cop No Donut. And at the time, the David Suzuki book, uh, The Making of Last House on the Left, had really inspired me on how, you know, just again, reading Last House on the Left, the Craven movie, is definitely one of my favorite low budget grindhouse uh, exploitation horror films, you know, uh, of all time. Again, this was before, pretty much before the internet and before DVDs had extensive. Commentaries uh, and making of stuff, and and the you know the kind of the Arrow releases that we have today, and the um, the Blu-ray and the 4K, uh, you know the image, the vinegar syndrome stuff that we have now. This was right before all that was would break through in in DVD and then accelerate into you know Blu-ray later. So I got this book, The Making of Last House on the Left, and and man, I was just inspired. I think we had made Truth or Dare 3, Screaming for Sanity. That was a rather rough extended experience and it took like a year. My idea was just to do something like Last House on the Left, thumb our our noses or fingers at society and just make something down and dirty. John Waters just crazy, original, don't even think about, you know, what's known and kind of do a spoof on cops, only a serious one where the cameraman is part of the problem just recording everything that this insane cop does as he takes the law in his own hands and the vision was drug dealers using their drugs killing them uh... randomly uh... rapists looking them up castrating them and doing all this kind of crazy stuff and 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 then also shooting it like cops so it was completely documentary style with a lot of improv where the scenes were just it's fleshed out in the story, but letting the actors do improv and, and really, uh, you know, put them in that situation and see where it goes. So that was the whole thinking, and they shoot it fast, and it kind of edited as we go, and it was great. It was just a great experience. I think it was like 1998 when we shot, shot that uh, 97, 98, and Joel Wynkoop was natural for the, you know, the lead role. As uh, Gus Kimball, the, the crazed cop who may or may not be a cop, and uh, his crazed brother that just documents his night of uh, depraved actions, taking vengeance on everybody that he meets. And we kind of ended up not making it a slasher film, but we wanted to make it look like it could have been real, and maybe it was real, so we didn't even do any credits at the beginning and that was like the you know to try to make this thing look real and uh that was like the beginning of it all and it was finished before Blair Witch and Blair Witch had kind of interestingly I was like wow they had the kind of the same concept on trying to make something and make it look real and and pass it off as something reality of course you know they got lucky and did it more commercial with the uh you know the spook angle the uh you know spooky uh, unseen spirit or or you know, Lost in the Woods type of thing, where mine was more hardcore, uh, exploitation, expl- ex- expletives, uh, you know, going on, and and crazy things that, you know, mainstream audiences uh, may not want to, to watch, so, but we had, you know, a, a kind of Blair Witch, kind of, took that thunder, you know, away from us, but at the same time we did when it came out, it really uh, did well. It won like uh, the Amazing World of Cult movies gave it best director, best actor award for whenever the year was it came out in 99 or something like that. So, it ended up, you know, doing really well right out of the gate. Later, it did not do so well once the mainstream critics got a hold of it. They say any publicity is good publicity, but unfortunately at that time it really turned on us and once some of the tv guide reviews got out once it played in theaters and like the village voice and the new york times and some of these really big uh, newspapers and and reviewers got a hold of the movie cuz i think srs cinema hired this uh pr guy to uh you know really get it out there there the reviews were incredibly harsh and instead of to me, it would have been like last house on the left, where these uh, uh, you know reviews and stuff would have made me want to see the movie. As if you were, I would have been like, man, I got to, go, I got to seek that out. That just sounds insane. But for some reason, I don't know if the market was ebbing or declining, or video. Was, I think video was getting ready to transition into DVD, and it really got lost. You know, the movie for some reason, and that transaction from VHS to DVD and so forth so unfortunately it was limited success we hadn't really spent any money on it we had a big website up and then we kind of you know tried to make it look like it was real Uh, even though it was shot way before uh, Blair Witch it took longer to get it out and we tried that format to get it out and we got it in theaters and got reviews I remember seeing a a big write-up in movie line magazine I was working at a hotel and and I uh, Distributed the uh, newspapers and magazines as part of my job, and I remember getting hundreds of copies at the hotel because it a big resort with like 400 rooms and seeing Movie Line Magazine with a big full-page write-up of Dirty Cop No Donut and they trashed it. Again, I would have sought the movie out, and I don't know why more people didn't uh, when they read these really horrible reviews on how just over-the-top and nightmarish and crazy and, you know... Uh, gagging on boobs and blood, and, you know, all these just perfect things that you would think would have catapulted the movie into a really huge success, but unfortunately, you know, uh, again, it was a $350 movie, biggest expense was, you know, driving around and trying to find, uh, and the junkyard scene with the car that got destroyed, that scene came out phenomenal with Joel's rage and everything, I thought, and the way it was shot with smashing the windows with the baton and everything uh, but it was, you know in exchange for that car and getting it the, the guy who uh, worked at the junkyard just got a part in the movie and uh, he was the pawn shop owner and you know all that worked out great every shortcut imaginable to trying to make that movie for almost nothing so you know that was uh, you know just a really cool experience and over the years you know people kind of caught on for it It never really caught on kind of like I thought it should or hoped it would but uh, you know, it's still out there, and I'm sure there'll be more, you know, releases of uh, Dirty Cop No Donut and its sequel, which sp- starred co-starred Donald Farmer as another crazy cop. But, uh, you know, at the time, just cops and, and seeing something super zany and how it was in their world and exaggerating all that kind of stuff uh, was just really fun to do. That was kind of the inspiration for all that.
0: Have you ever been able to support yourself from making movies?
1: Well, making movies, you know, would have been nice to do so, uh, but no, the answer, direct answer to that is no, not support, you know, totally from income from movies, definitely not. Most of what, what I did was just, you know, in order to keep making movies, whatever profit or whatever money you made, you know, from movies, the movies yourself uh... you know you put back into the company or you put into the next project and joel Weinkoop and, and i and several other people you know as we did one we would just save enough money from the profits or the residuals that, that were our own from something and just put that into the next project so that's kind of how we you know we didn't live off the money so you know that was not ever the plan we had hoped something might cool might happen but uh... and, and it took a long time uh... over the years um, know everything most everything that I shot on video has broken even and, and made a little extra especially you know these days with the retro stuff if I buy copies and then resell them at, at shows and autograph them and that sort of thing with the interest you know there was like a it's kind of uh, on and off but you know there is a real interest in you know VHS re-releases and collectors for that and they go for a much higher rate you know, especially at special shows and on eBay and that sort of thing. So, you know, that that has been a real boon in the old projects and the old movies, uh, the the people who love to collect them in the original packaging and autographed and in their you know, original release mode with those covers and, and on that older format like there's a you know there's a whole group out there that loves vinyl despite streaming obviously taking over everything and you know 4k and blu-ray being like the last standouts for collectors um, and over the next few years it'll be very interesting to see what's left but you know at the same time you see that there's still a small niche market for, you know, collectors who who like to physically hold CDs, uh, DVDs, Blu-rays, posters, you know, those kind of things. So I think that'll always be there to some degree until these collecting generations completely die off, which they may or may never die off because, you know, kids of the upcoming generation, if, parents, if they see their parents who are diehard fans, you know, collect this kind of stuff, they usually end up getting into it as well. So I think, There'll always be a niche market for the diehard uh, limited edition material and that sort of thing. So you know, uh, that pretty much wraps you know that up as far as. Uh, but support? No, I've always had to work you know odd jobs. And and there, again, for somebody who is getting into the business or wants to be just an independent movie writer or director, um, unless you make a small fortune off of something. You know, you got to be prepared to, you know, have a backup plan to make income and get health insurance and support your family because it's all a crapshoot. Unless you're lucky enough to be a part of, uh, you know, something that really catches on where you can save a million dollars, put it in the bank, let it grow, or uh, get a good money manager, or you know, get things set up for the future uh, in some sort of, you know, IRA or 401k or something like that. So you really, you know, you really got to do that. Uh, even the people who are working in Hollywood for like the Sci-Fi channel and those kind of things, you know, it's a struggle. You don't get paid a lot of money for, you know, working for Asylum or or Camp Video or, you know, all these companies, you know, you just get paid project by project and, it can take two years to make a movie, and uh, you know it's it, your end. Gross for two years of work may be very little compared to what you know you would, would make uh, again. Being a manager at a you know Burger King or whatever, so you just got to kind of find that balance. I think
0: you are married, right? Um, any kids?
1: I am married and no, did not have any kids uh, myself at this time. I have mainly cats. So, uh, other than that, uh, not much else to say.
0: Has your obsession with making movies played any havoc with your home life?
1: Making movies, you know, is an obsession. You know, at one point I had hoped it would be a career where you could make you know a constant income and live off of that and realizing at some point that it was not and kind of having still an, an extremely obsessive hobby that you live with twenty four hours a day pretty much even when you're working and trying to earn a living Definitely plays havoc with home life, and there's always a balance, you know. And I know it's even worse for people with kids and you know and wives and, and you know that sort of thing. Unfortunately, uh, my wife had always been involved with you know these movies in, in some capacity, whether helping me put them together, filling in for roles where somebody didn't show up, and, and helping with the logistics when I needed. So she's been very supportive over that. So I was very lucky with that. Um, kids probably would have, I don't know, probably would have derailed me for many years just in terms financially because, you know, you would have to, you know, support your kids and a lot of that extra money that you would play with to try to make a movie or distribute a movie or get a movie out there or try different things might have been taken away. So, you know, that did not happen and, uh, you know, I was able to you know, continue with doing that. Some people are able to balance that, but uh, again, you know, real life catches up with the real, R-E-E-L life, for sure, because uh, parents get sick, there's obligations, uh, you know, people get older, you get older, I get older, everybody gets older, and, uh, and there's always situations and, and home life and domestic duties and, and stuff, uh, caring of your parents, you know, if, if you're inclined, uh, you know, things you got to attend to. And especially the older you get, it gets harder and harder and harder to uh, balance all that and, and uh, you know, make it work. But somehow I've kind of just stayed at it. But, yes, you know, it's different for everybody, but there are always challenges. Um, I know when my dad went into a, he got, ended up getting Alzheimer's and trying to help take care of him and deal with all that really for many years made it difficult to, uh, you know, do anything because it was a 24-hour job and, you know, even when he went into, like, assisted living and, you know, all that kind of thing, it was, you know, more focused on, you know, helping him and trying to help him through all that kind of stuff than, you know, the the movie thing, so... And there was a period also where I thought, well, you know, I've kind of said everything I can say right now, uh, you know, maybe I won't pursue this as much, and unfortunately for me, uh, the obsession kind of continued, and I was like, well, maybe I'll just write some scripts, so I ended up doing a bunch of spec scripts, almost got Truth or Dare remade at Lionsgate, Uh, again, a lot of development hell situations, and, uh, you know, writing. I did a couple novels, and and I ended up going, ah, maybe I'll experiment with some videos and this newer equipment. And it was just a few years, but I ended up, you know, jumping back full force and, into movies. So if it's in your blood, it's in your blood. So, uh, but yes, there's stop and start stalls. You know, you got to have money. you got to raise money. There, you know, there, there, anything can interrupt uh, the making of, of a movie, especially the older you get, and trying to balance personal stuff and money, finances, insurance, health so many things play into it it's just incredibly difficult to describe so you just gotta kind of roll with it have a plan try to you know I guess the older that I get maybe the less intense seriousness I feel toward as far as you know being you know if there's something that interrupts it I don't get as upset and, and you know I realize that things are going to inter, interrupt it but I, I mean up into my Probably 30s and 40s, I was like, uh, yeah, you know, why are you interrupting my movie stuff? This is the priority. So, and maybe with more of a catalog out there now, I'm not as, you know, lit on fire to continue to, you know, be so, uh, I don't know what you would even call it, obsessive over getting stuff out there. I'm not sure, so.
0: When making a movie, are you thinking about the money that can be made or the doors that might open, or are you just wanting to make a movie?
1: Well, making movies, again, for me, is just, as a fan, I started out as a horror fan, I got it, you know, at a young age, I saw Jaws in the theater, then, you know, Incredible Melting Man, I was obsessed with the commercial, as a little kid, I was always creative, writing books, later scripts, I saw Halloween, Game Changer for just being a slasher fan, Last House on the Left. Later, Scream, Friday the 13th movie, Star Wars. Loved it all, love it all. Uh, it's just always been a big inspiration. And it's never been about the money for me. It's just, as a fan, I enjoyed photo novels. I've enjoyed all the formats. Uh, it's an addiction as well, collecting and obsessing over this material. So I would say that I see myself more as just a fan who wanted to join the party, but when I film stuff, it's kind of the only time I feel really alive creating these alternate worlds that I control, where I can go through uh, cathartic releases, you know, doing what I want as far as, uh, you know. Whatever it might be in content, uh, as Cronenberg says in uh, "videodrama: cathartic release for the viewer's fantasies and frustrations." Uh, so, uh, and again, something I said in Draculina a long time ago, which was a quote from someone unknown. For those who understand, uh, no explanation is necessary. For those who don't understand, no no explanation is possible. But I think. It's just a love for horror, and then as a fan, you know, loving, you know, those moments where you feel all this stuff, whether it's, you know, an action movie or a movie like Halloween or a canon movie or an exploitation movie, it's experiencing that movie, and then, of course, you've got... The materials, the making of books, the press releases, the you know the press cards, the commentaries, what the director was thinking, what everybody was thinking, the special effects, the circumstances the movie were made you know the made, when the movie was made under uh, how it was released, when it was released, just obsessions over movies and it, there comes a point as a fan where it's not even enough to watch the making of material and hear the commentaries and and you know hear the filmmakers talk about it, it becomes something that you want to participate in and homage that material. I wanted to be on the set of Last House on the Left* or Halloween, so it becomes in your own material, you're kind of homaging the things you love or putting a new spin on it, hopefully, taking it in a new direction, and you're experiencing, you're actually experiencing the making of of that portion of the movie you love so much or the movie itself in a new way, so uh, it's just just that next level it's that final piece of fandom for a lot of us that are just so enthused by it and live it and breathe it that we become it and have to salute it with our own work as well as continuing to be a fan and I get obsessed with you know my older like right now I'm going through an obsession again with David Cronenberg and all his movies and uh, going through and even his filmography and, and uh, you know, rereading some of the books uh, that interview, that he did interviews with and picking up new things and new sources of inspiration and catching up on a couple of the titles because, of course, he went off the beaten trail and a lot of stuff and then catching up with titles I missed or only watched once and finding new things in them. So, and again, that fuels me and excites me as a movie maker and a fan. And then, you know, I go out and try to homage or recreate or continue that. So it's just kind of a weird cycle of insanity. So, really wild. It's never about the money. It's just about being an obsessive fan and doing my, you know, my own stuff there. So.
0: You started out in the peak of the video boom. And now you're in the middle of what I feel is the decline of the video era. Has things changed for the better or the worse, as far as you're concerned?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure on, on, you know, the video era. It started out with Beta. That kind of downfall, VHS, VHS kind of was the phoenix of the ashes in that battle. Uh, VHS had its run, and it kind of died out, and then DVD is still not super strong, but it still sells, and it's still a valid format. As, uh, as DVD evolved into Blu-ray to a lesser extent, because not everyone is really on board with that, um, streaming has come up. And that was, uh, you know, my movies got really good exposure on Netflix when they first started up. And that really rejuvenated interest in Truth or Dare and Killing Spree. So they've enjoyed Truth or Dare and Killing Spree and Wicked Games and Creep have really enjoyed almost every format to a degree. Uh, You know, they started out on VHS, Beta, uh, LaserDisc. They've seen... uh, DVD, multiple DVD and VHS releases, soundtrack releases on uh, vinyl for Killingspree and uh, Truth or Dare. Um, so they've enjoyed all this, and then they had a nice streaming run when uh, Netflix first started. It was all B-movies, and Truth or Dare and Killingspree were on that when it was very early when they started that. I forget when it was. Was it 2010 or 2008? or Whenever it was when Netflix first started giving subscribers of the rental service through the mail uh, and my movies did really well on netflix there you know as rentals through the mail uh... when they put that as an extra bonus for your uh... mail order rentals uh... my movies truth or Dare and daring killing spree and you know some of the others were on netflix for quite an extended period of time and on the raku services on the various channels which they still are they pop up on and off on Tubi be and uh, Amazon Prime now and all these different you know variables uh, the exploitation you know websites and, and raku channels so they're all they're all still out there so as far as I'm concerned it's still business as usual uh, if anything the market is more competitive than ever it's hard to, Make a name for yourself with all the streaming stuff because now anybody and everybody can, you know, make a movie on their iPhone 20, edit it, upload it to Create Space, or get it on Amazon, or, or, you know, to a less degree now, Netflix, because, you know, you have to have a package deal with that, and they produce so much in house now. So that changed really fast to kind of a studio and in house type of thing, you know, and now they're producing, of course, their own great shows, like Stranger Things, and, um, uh, what's that other one, Mind Hunters, which is a great show, and many other great shows that people love, so they've kind of become their own studio, so, I don't know, it's almost like the same, it seems that it's up and down, but for new people, I do think it's a lot harder to get noticed if you don't have some kind of, you know, name, where you started out on or known for something um, from previous decades or previous era. You know, if you're just starting out now from ground zero, it's so easy to post something on Vimeo or YouTube where you have the potential to have a worldwide audience, yet only 25 people, you know, download or watch your videos. So it's very tough, very easy to get lost in the shuffle. So I I would agree on that for this video era it is tough but uh, for myself it has not been uh, you know that I've not had that problem as much because you know I have a history that started out you know 30 something years ago and people have been watching people most people know my early stuff so if they know they know kind of know what to expect now and the projects I do now more than ever are Stuff that people want me to do. In other words, it's stuff that uh, uh, was going to happen anyway, and I just kind of joined the party. I'm invited to put my spin on it, whether it's a high eight with uh, Brad Sykes and and uh, Wild Eye Entertainment, or High Fear, which we have coming out, or something with Tony Maciello, uh the Zambarella stuff, and you know all that that kind of thing. So. Uh, Uh, gift-wrapped and gutted Richard Mogg, who's an avid filmmaker and fan of the analog uh, Nightmares book that covered all the shot-on-video movies from 82 to 95 of that era. He's done just an incredible job of um, uh, kind of capturing and recording that era era of of movie-making and and legitimizing it even more. And uh, just love it that he has done that and there's so many people out there like him and Tony Masiello and uh Matt Hill uh, who I've worked with and has become a screenwriter himself now so all these people you know kind of go hand in hand we all kind of promote each other and uh you know ride on each other's coattails and when we have a uh, a movie like High Eight or the upcoming High Fear come out with Todd Sheets contributing and myself and Brad Sykes and new filmmakers and uh, you know upcoming filmmakers and you know all that kind of stuff. We all come together and and help promote that and and get it out there. So it's always you know exciting and an exciting way to kind of stay valid and keep your expenses and your time investment down a little bit. So. So in that aspect, that's good, too. So I'm kind of picking, cherry-picking, and choosing the things to, to try to stay a little bit, uh, you know, out there in the limelight and, and not overdo it and, uh, you know, get lost in the shuffle. And the old stuff is still, you know, uh, loved and in a retro way, not forgotten on the Blu-rays and the, the streaming. And then there's, you know, some of the newer filmmakers uh, that have joined the party, like uh, Brad Twig, who is inspired, you know, by some, many people, including myself, the older stuff, uh, and uh, where I'm located located now, Jerry Williams, It was inspired by Creep and made his own version of that, even down to a lead character that looks like uh, Joel Wancoop. So it's just really cool how it just kind of goes on and on, and... Uh, recycles, and uh, it, it just, you know, you don't get lost in the shuffle, so it's just just kind of, like I said, it's kind of good, but I can see where a lot of people would see that it is a decline, because uh, it is tough to get recognized in the streaming world, and now, you know, places like Amazon and such kind of restrict content, and they take down the smaller stuff, so it seems, and uh, although, again, I've done really well with uh, Killing Spree, it's been on Amazon Prime, and and people are really excited and rediscovering it. Older fans, new fans, the the fans show their children, and they get into it, uh, you know, really nicely. And uh, you know, it just goes on. And uh, Killing Spree, while showing very successfully on Amazon Prime streaming, was also running in the theater all summer in 2019. Uh, the the Alamo Drafthouse uh, had a presentation of it, and. Rolled it out all summer to uh, many sold-out showings, uh, you know, across the country at their, you know, their thing. So, for myself, it's been an incredible, incredible ride because while I'm selling the movie at VHS retro shows, it's in the theater and uh, people are going to see it in the theater and uh, you know loving it there and seeing it t- together with an audience, and then it's also on Prime, on one of the bigger streaming sites. And, you know, and enjoying a very good success there. So I think I'm very lucky in, in having it that way. So I definitely feel blessed that I have all these formats kind of working for me. But it is, not everybody can enjoy that at, at that level, I think. So in some strange way, it has kind of worked out, you know, pretty cool for myself. But at the same time, it is a challenge. And moving forward, it's, you know, it can be as the older formats get more and more niche, it does get more and more difficult to, uh, you know, stay relevant and of course no one ever does. Usually, you know, if you look back at some of the greats that, you know, even inspired, you know, all of us that are still doing this, there's like a 10 year peak where they, you know, the biggest filmmakers make their best movies in this like 10, 12 year period, you kind of notice with the same cast, DOP, uh, you know, group of people and then things change, you know, a new generation brings, you know, new new people and new ideas and a new way of watching. And uh, I also find it kind of interesting that as much as we have 4K and 10K and all these gigantic TVs and the best quality where you shoot something on video, unlike the analog days where if you go down a generation, it looks terrible, and another generation, a Submaster, looks even worse like mud. That's liked today, but now you can... Make a movie and have it super clear and look as good as anything you see in the theater, almost if you light it right. Yet nobody's using that in the theaters as much. Everybody's binge watching things on a three-inch phone screen. So it's just kind—it of, is kind of strange. So it really takes some, you know, adaptation. And I—I uh, I don't know. It's just, you know, who knows where it's going to go from here. Here, you know, what exactly will happen in the future. So just kind of my random thoughts on it.
0: You've made a lot of short videos for compilation tapes. Do people seek you out for that?
1: Uh, yes, uh, I think as I mentioned and was talking about, uh, I've collaborated with uh, Tony Masiello on Zombrella, Brad Sykes on the High 8, High Fear, High uh, Death trilogy, which we're amidst right now. High Fear will be coming out in 2020 with you know more shorts from the team that has done all these through Wild Eye Entertainment and uh, Richard Mogg, you know, asked me to contribute a a segment to, you know, his project for Gift gift Wrapped and Gutted. So, uh, you know, that kind of thing is just, you know, excellent and and a good way to stay, you know, out there with your name and uh, contribute to people's work and again they promote you and you promote them and uh, just kind of keeps your name out there, and it's great to be asked to do these things. So, it's been quite a while since I've really self-generated something from ground zero. Probably Deadly Dares, Truth or Dare Part Four, which you know I kind of jumped back into things, and that was like in 2010, 2012 when it came out, but 2008 when I wrote it, 10 when we started to shoot it, 12 2012 when it came out, and the, that whole thing evolved from me wanting to just try the new hd format and jump back in and kind of do a version of truth or dare it was kind of a remake that tied into the original but how would i do it in today's marketplace how would i channel it how would i create it you know based on today's technology and ideas so it was kind of a rethinking of truth or dare and i immediately took it on the internet with you know people doing dares on the internet and that kind of came to, a, you know, a reality in some way later where, you know, a few years later where people were doing crazy things for likes and daring each other to eat Tide pods and all these crazy things, burn their faces on stoves and all that kind of thing. So it was kind of shocking to actually see that really happen in the social media world. And it was odd kind of thinking of that beforehand. So that was kind of a, a strange movie to make and then look back on, you know, as I I began that project and then seeing it through and then kind of seeing all that into a reality. So uh, very, very interesting. But yes, these days I usually just do stuff that is, you know, kind of thrown at me as a contribution to something that somebody else is doing and put my little spin on, on it, whether it's a short or a contribution to their project and still kind of living out my dream like the, you know, Richard Moggs, Gut, gift wrapped and gutted movie. I got to do. I've always wanted to do a killer Slant Santa movie because I'm a big fan of Silent Night, Deadly Night and those kind of movies. And it was just great to, you know, do a spin on that and have have a blast doing it. So, so that's kind of the way that is.
0: It has been 33 years since Truth or Dare was made. How has your view of your career in movie making changed?
1: Again, uh, not not really much. Uh, my view of, mo- uh, you know, movie making and everything is it's it's always the same. You've got to cast it. You've got to hire the right people for the right role, uh, for the right characters. Casting can be, you know, 90% of things, putting the right person in the, in the right part, uh, finding the right locations, getting the money. None of that has changed. It's the same as it was probably you know, when movies were first created uh, and, you know, when Thomas Edison tried to make movies and did some little horror, horror movies, he faced the same dilemmas, you know, where are you going to shoot, who's going to be in it, how are we going to do the effects. What's changed, of course, is, you know, the equipment, the technology, the quality, and the way movies are now seen instantly on the internet. You know, there's no searching, it's just streaming, it's available and you can find it easily or you can order a copy. and and get it or watch it on your phone so as long as people are watching you know your that's the whole goal is to get people to see your work and have fans and hopefully enjoy it and escapism and you know, contribute to what you love. So, and and that aspect of it, you know, has definitely changed. Is it better or worse? Uh, it's just a new generation and the way they watch this stuff. And you know, will we become obscure, obs- completely obscure, wiped out, and, and lost and oblivion? Or where will we be able to you know endure and and you know have our stuff seen? That's you know the the question and challenge for, for each movie maker, So it, you just kind of got to go with it and do the best that you can.
0: So what are your plans now? Any future goals or things you feel you need to do?
1: Well, right now I'm just continuing to forge ahead. I kind of have an alliance with um, Shannon Stockin, known as Michelle Macabra. We're working together. Uh, We met uh, about a year ago, and we're doing, you know, movies. She wants to be... uh, always wanted to do special makeup effects and these things and had done a few movies before you know we uh, met and kind of hooked up together in lexington kentucky and we're doing you know a bunch of different projects now uh, again right now it's mainly shorts for the compilation movies and stuff but in hopefully in twenty twenty we're gonna you know tackle a, a feature and see where that goes and she's also an excellent actress and helping her is kind of reinvigorated you know my view on the movies and and, you know wanting to forge ahead and and help somebody you know live their dreams through these movies and and keep at it and for myself to keep at it so it's just been uh you know it's just kind of kept my future goals going as far as uh you know motivating me to keep moving ahead creatively and, and doing this stuff so so far all our collaborations have been really cool we did a video for uh Savage Master, where she did the special makeup effects of a witch, and we kind of did a Mario Bava type of thing, and it did real well for you know for the band. They got an album coming out, so that was an interesting experience. Um, High Fear, where we did a segment called When Shadows Come Alive, and uh, we're working on that now. That's in post-production. We have another short that's uh, coming out for a, a Scott Bullock uh, I think it's called Death's Door uh, Anthology, so we're going to be shooting that. It's kind of a serial killer twist uh, that you may not expect with some domestic friction in it. No surprise there. Uh, We did an awesome opening for uh, Richard Mogg's uh, Gift-Wrapped and and Gutted uh, horror-themed Wave directed by Gary Whitson. A movie that's coming up, Uh, we did like an opening retro slasher Santa movie in the beginning with uh, Larry Treadway at the videography helm and producing helm and uh, working with uh, Shelbo Mullins, uh, a fan who's joined on board. Uh, He's just a fan of all this stuff and Killing Spree is one of his favorite movies. He's joined the party. So these are kind of the goals. Uh, I don't really feel that I need to do anything. I think I've got a really nice back catalog of movies that people can view and discover if they like this sort of thing for escapism, or maybe want to you know have some inspiration. Like uh, you know, I get inspiration off of you know other filmmakers and the classics: Carpenter, Cronenberg, Romero, Craven generation that I grew up with and maybe some of these people starting out will see what I've done. I've heard it from fans over and over that uh, want to become filmmakers that you know my stuff inspired them and that's just great. We're all kinda horror fans fueling off of each other and you know doing what we love and hopefully contributing positives to the to the genre and you know you never know when somebody will have a a success and it's just kinda having fun doing it and uh, you know doing these things in the future so um, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. I mean, of course, I would love to do something a little bigger budgeted, but I really don't want to go over you know a certain amount unless it's financed by you know a big company that has distribution. So it would be great to you know be involved in something that uh, you know was uh, produced by. Elijah Wood's company who he loves Truth or Dare and he's stated that uh, Truth or Dare was one of the reasons he got into making horror movies and did Maniac and it's one of his childhood favorite movies so great to hear and always great to hear his stories on there and he's gone on to film festivals uh, promoting Truth or Dare and even showing it and doing a commentary while the movie's running. Uh, on how much he likes it and how it affected him. So, you know, you never know what will happen in the future, and in the meantime, just collaborating with people like uh, Shannon and, and doing this stuff is, you know, what, you know, that's what I'm doing. It's, again, the only time I kind of feel alive, so that's the way I'm going to play it for now.
0: So, I hope you enjoyed Part 2 of the Tim Ritter interview. Be sure to follow the Draculina podcast, and you will be notified when new episodes come out. Or you can also go to Draculina.com website for any info concerning Draculina. So, until next time, don't let life suck the life out of you.